Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Hey, everybody. It is Devin. And before we get started, I got to let you know about this new podcast that's out. It's a KQED podcast called Truth Be Told with your host, Tanya Mosley. It's unlike anything I've ever heard out of KQED. It's an advice podcast made by people of color for people of color at a time when I think it's really important that we have uh, real conversations about race and identity. It's hosted by Tanya Mosley. And again, it's Truth Be Told. You could find it now anywhere you get your podcasts. So PG&E's new CEO, Bill Johnson, was testifying in front of a state assembly committee at the same time that lawmakers in that committee were learning about the company's role in the campfire in Butte County. Uh, Just came out today. Pacific Gas and Electric Company is being blamed for sparking the deadliest and most destructive wildfire in California history. A new headline. Cal Fire has confirmed what most people, including PG&E executives, assumed that the company is responsible for California's deadliest wildfire. So what does this investigation mean to the families who've lost homes and loved ones and to the company that's already in bankruptcy? I'm Devin Kadiyama. Welcome to The Bay. So the campfire broke out two days after the November election. Marisa Lagos is a correspondent for KQED's Politics and Government Desk, and she co-hosts the Political Breakdown podcast. I remember because I was actually in Sacramento, and, and I got there in the morning, and it's it was a weird day. It was really windy. And when I got out of my first meeting, it smelled like campfire. And so it was pretty clear that something big was happening. I just remember by the time I got back in my car to drive back down to San Francisco, Paradise was basically burned to the ground. We have passed by hundreds of homes burning, as well as businesses. This looks like maybe it used to be a motel turned strip mall. That was not even on fire a couple minutes ago when we drove through here. Now it's going to be a total loss. Hundreds of homes are gone. That fast moving fire in Butte County has wiped out much of the town of Paradise. The fire is now just outside of Chico, forcing thousands from their homes. Attention really quickly focused on PG&E power lines. People up there knew that they lived in a fire-prone area, right? This is a a town that's built basically abutting the forest, um, but also because there had been complaints and thoughts about this transmission tower. So A PG&E transmission tower. A PG&E transmission tower. And these are those huge things. It almost looks like Sutro Tower, right? The really big right, yeah, ones yeah. that you know will be on top of one peak. And these are the ones that are delivering power really far away. These are sort of the freeway of PG&E lines. And the calls that had come in to emergency officials and also, I think, to PG&E pretty quickly indicated that there had been a problem near this big transmission line. One of those calls was made by a PG&E employee who spotted a fire near Polga, 
which is the town about 10 miles east of the city of Paradise. I think from the beginning, there was a big sense that it would be pretty surprising if that was not the cause of the fire. In the days that followed, we heard about a second ignition point a few miles west of Bolga. Again, near PG&E lines that Cal Fire this week confirmed helped spur another fire near some dry vegetation. I think it was sort of just like a drip, drip, drip of investigations and reporting. There was never a moment as this thing unfolded that another credible cause of this fire really came up. And in a press release on Wednesday, the Cal Fire deputy director said that there is probable cause that state violations had occurred. What type of violations is he talking about? Well, it's hard to know because (laughs) Cal Fire is not giving us the full report. They handed it over to the Butte County District Attorney, who's actually doing a criminal investigation. What seems likely, given what we know publicly, is that they may have deferred maintenance on this tower, even though they knew that it was in pretty poor condition. And we know that they had asked for money to replace this transmission tower, which was decades old, along with many others. We know that it had been on the list that they asked the CPUC for money, ratepayer money to replace. We know that it got moved repeatedly to the bottom of that list. Generally, what we've seen in the past when PG&E and other utilities have been blamed for fires or other incidents like the San Bruno explosion has been Basically, that they're not following the state regulations that they are required to to keep the public safe. So in the case of San Bruno, they were not upkeeping their gas lines sufficiently. They said they had done work that they didn't do. They didn't have a lot of information about lines that they should have. In the case of some of the 2017 fires, there were tree branches and other brush that fell into electricity lines or the electrical lines you know, came up against them in high winds. And that can be a violation of state regulations because there's specific clearance levels that these utilities are required to have around their equipment. So it seems likely in this case that it would be a similar sort of violation. We know that PG&E has been responsible for the fires a couple of years ago, and we know there have been tons of lawsuits that have been filed against PG&E. What's the significance of the news this week of CAL FIRE's finding? Legally, there's not a lot of significance. I talked to Amanda Riddle, who is representing 1,800 campfire victims, and she said this essentially confirms what we already know. Our goal is to get the largest fund possible for them, get them compensated, um, you know, every cent that they were impacted, and get that done as soon as we can. And in fact, CAL FIRE reports are not admissible in civil court, so the, the report itself isn't really going to change their strategy or their suits. We've got um, over 20,000 victims so far that are represented by attorneys that we know are going to be making claims um, against PG&E in the bankruptcy court. But what she said is that it's it's validating. It's validating for the survivors who have blamed PG&E um, and, you know, who are suing them. It might be validating to victims and survivors who haven't actually filed a lawsuit yet and have been waiting to see what the state said. And then she felt like it also was important for the public, that they understood that this utility officially caused this fire. I think it it helps the public's understanding of the cause of the fire. It helps uh, members of the public who were impacted understand that they do have a right to compensation from PG&E. So the CAL FIRE investigations being forwarded to the Butte County District Attorney who's opened up this criminal investigation, what, what is the district attorney actually looking at? 
and going to be deciding. So the Butte County District Attorney is essentially conducting a pretty wide-ranging investigation into the cause of this fire and whether there could be criminal charges brought. In general, in these cases, nobody's saying that somebody at PG&E willfully went out and did something that they intended to cause the deaths of 85 people in Paradise or dozens of people in the North Bay of the Bay Area. But if they didn't follow the laws and regulations that they are required to by law, that can mean that they're negligent. And so that could mean in a civil context, whether it be the all these victims suing them. I think the DA thinks that there's a potential, not definitely, but that that could also fit in a criminal context. I mean, I have a lot of questions about what that could look like. Would it be against former executives there, Geisha Williams, who left as CEO? That's pretty unusual in sort of white collar type, you know, Uh corporate cases. But I think you also could raise the question, like, how useful has it been to have PG&E as a corporation be charged, convicted, of a felony and now be on probation. I mean, right. nobody's actually going to jail for that. Nobody's they paid fines, but they're uh-huh. a multi-billion dollar corporation. So my sense is that the Butte County DA is really looking hard at what his legal options are and whether there are, you know, I I would guess more potentially more creative ways that they could go about some sort of case. Did PG&E's new CEO Bill Johnson say anything about the Cal Fire investigation conclusions? Yeah, so he was very careful. The Cal Fire report came out literally as he was sitting down in front of Assembly Utilities uh, Committee on Wednesday. Uh, I don't know if you want to take a second to respond. You don't have to. When he was asked about it, he took a big sort of pause and said... It's a disappointment that this happened. Um, Let's not do it again. What has Governor Gavin Newsom been saying about PG&E and the potential and now conclusion that they caused the campfire? So the governor has struck a really interesting position here. And and to understand why I think it's interesting, we got to go back in time to when he was mayor. PG&E is a San Francisco-based company. They have historically pre-San Bruno been sort of a darling of San Francisco because they've always been really big political players. They've given a lot of money to candidates, but they've also given a lot of what's known as behested payments. So these are contributions to philanthropic, nonprofit, sort of community organizations and initiatives that they would give on behalf of a lawmaker or somebody in power. So if you're mayor and you're like, hey, there's this great after school program in the Bayview I really want to help with, PG&E could cut a check to them and it would be sort of on behalf of the mayor. He would have asked for it. And while Newsom was mayor, there's a lot of fights over the question of public power and whether San Francisco should sort of try to move away from PG&E to either procure its own power or deliver its own power. And Newsom was generally seen as very cozy with this utility. That, I would say, has changed. He really came into office striking a very hard line with PG&E, expressing his disappointment about their role in these fires and how they have acted as a corporation. Just as this report came out, his office filed a motion in the bankruptcy court, um, the first really official time they've intervened, asking the judge not to give PG&E a six-month extension um, around their restructuring plan. This is part of the whole bankruptcy procedures. 
And he also came out pretty strongly when they recently asked the CPUC if they could increase the amount of money that people who invest in PG&E make. So right now, PG&E bondholders are guaranteed 10.25 percent, 10 and a quarter. It's among, I think, the top three or four rates of return in the nation for investor-owned utilities. PG&E wants that to go up to 16 percent. Whoa. The governor (laughs) came out very fast and said, no way. Yeah. Of course, he doesn't actually have power over that. It's a CPUC decision. And they and the other utilities are saying we can't get investors without this increase. But I think that all sort of combines to show you that, at least in public, Newsom has been quick to criticize a corporation that our former governor, Jerry Brown, was not as fast to sort of jump and uh, jump up and down about. Can you remind me, why did PG&E say that it had to file for bankruptcy? PG&E saw after two years of dozens of devastating fires, their ability to borrow money uh, was getting squeezed. And what that means effectively is it's super expensive to borrow money. Um, But what PG&E said was, look, we can't borrow money. We have to borrow money to operate. We're too big of a corporation. We don't have enough cash on the books to do the kind of infrastructure work and other investments that we do every year, not just because of these fires. We have no choice but to restructure. And you know, what bankruptcy court is, is going in and saying, I have a pile of debt. Judge, you figure out who should get paid first and, you know, who should get paid last and who might not get paid at all. Does the Cal Fire investigation mean anything to the bankruptcy filing and the fact that PG&E has filed for bankruptcy? Not in a sense of it changes the calculation entirely. I mean, again, they already said that they probably were responsible for this fire. We now know that they are. Could it change how the public looks at this? Could it change the pressure on the bankruptcy court around victims um, and to get them a quick settlement? Perhaps. But I don't think it's going to make a huge difference. Um, I think bankruptcy proceedings are kind of going to keep plodding along like normal, um, regardless of a lot of the other noise happening in Sacramento and elsewhere. You mentioned that the CAL FIRE report can't be included in the civil lawsuits that are out there, of which there are many. So does the CAL FIRE investigation mean anything to the people who have filed these lawsuits? You know, the the victims obviously all are going to have slightly different needs and, and, and desires and ways that they need to be made whole. And I think that's a really big question for the bankruptcy judge, for their lawyers, for PG&E, is like, how quickly do they want to move these liabilities off the books? Um, and how quickly can they? Because what we're hearing from victims in Sacramento who have been lobbying the state capitol is that they would actually like the state to create a fund to pay out the victims that then PG&E would pay back and that they don't want PG&E to be able to come out of bankruptcy until that is fund is paid back to the state. And then they also are looking at other funds, like I said, for potentially bigger liability funds for future fires so that next time you don't have the bond ratings downgrading them, the stock in free fall and another bankruptcy filing. A big part of this that I've been reading and following is what this is going to mean to PG&E customers, to you and me, who have to, you know, use PG&E for electricity and gas. Mm-hmm. What do we know about what this p- could potentially do to our rates? It's not good. I'm not. I'm not looking. <laughs> You're not going to sugarcoat this. I'm not looking forward <laughs> to it. I mean, you have this question of the investors, the bondholders who invest, who only do that if they're making money, and then you have the ratepayers. 
So who do you think is going to pay for most of this? Um, I think it's going to be us. I mean, I think that there are potentially ways that the legislature and the CPUC can cushion that blow. I think the question for the people leading our state is, is that fair? I mean, there is an argument to be made that we need to make more investments in this infrastructure, that we as ratepayers benefit from it, and that we have that there's a reason that that we could be asked to chip in more for some of these things. What ratepayer advocates are really saying, though, is that the fact that PG&E potentially didn't upkeep their lines, didn't make the investments they said they were, while people on Wall Street were making profits during all that time, raises questions about whether we should actually have to be on the hook for all this. To me, it raises big questions about the very structure of investor-owned utilities. And is it the best process to have people betting on it on Wall Street and making money off of us in good times when in bad times we have to have this electricity and gas service no matter what? And so we kind of end up between a rock and a hard place as ratepayers because we need the service and they all hold the keys to it. Marisa, thank you so much. Always a pleasure, you guys. Earlier this month, the judge overseeing PG&E's probation ordered the company's board of directors to visit Paradise and San Bruno, which was the company's first really big deadly disaster in 2010. A group pushing for utility reforms said that doesn't go far enough. And they said maybe the judge should put PG&E into receivership or make its board members trade homes with fire victims in Paradise. Marisa Lagos is a correspondent for KQED's Politics and Government Desk, and she co-hosts the Political Breakdown podcast. The Bay is produced by Erica Cruz-Guevara and editor Erica Aguilar. KQED's leadership team includes Julie Kane, Vinny Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Devin Kadiyama. That's it for The Bay. You can follow us on Twitter at The Bay KQED. We'll talk to you next week. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.